0: Well, as we get going here this morning, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open in them to Matthew chapter 24. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 1 all the way through 35. We won't be reading all of it, so I just encourage you to have your Bible in whatever form in front of you as we jump around a little bit. But we're going to continue on, and and actually we're entering into the final month of looking at the stories Jesus told, Uh, a lot of the teachings that Jesus uh, used to Uh, tell his disciples and those outside of uh, those who are following him of what the kingdom of God actually looks like. And so again, we'll be in Matthew 24 verses 1 to 35. So before we get going, I want to just ask you this question. How often do you think about the end? How often do you think about the end? Uh, The end of your life or even the end of history uh, as we may know it? And I don't mean that question in a morbid way or in an unhelpful way, but in that uh, idea of, hey, have you ever thought about what it looks like to live life backwards with the end in mind uh, as you consider your life where you are right now? As a pastor, I have this unique position where uh, I get to consider that quite often, uh, being a part of various memorial services or with people as they uh, pass from this earthly life to uh, eternity, And, and it is a joy, a hard joy. Uh, but a joy nevertheless to be around in those moments. But this is one of those weeks where uh, I was faced with it multiple times. There were two memorial services that I was a part of, and there's a little bit of a whiplash in this week as I'm leaving here and immediately going to uh, a wedding. Uh, But but I often have the opportunity, challenging at times though it may be, to sit and go, wow, this is not permanent. Uh, This is not all there is. I will die. You will die die, and eventually history as we know it in a fallen post-Genesis 3 world will come to an end. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, so yes, this will be where uh, those who follow Christ will spend eternity. I remember uh, finding out one day that uh, heaven wasn't just uh, in the clouds somewhere, but there is a new heavens and new earth and we will exist uh, here uh, in that way, and I remember feeling kind of cheated, being like, how come it took me so long to get taught this somehow? But, um, But how often do we think about that? Well, I would argue that this last year has actually shown us that we, we work pretty hard to actually ignore that fact, to numb ourselves to the reality that, that our physical life will have an end. And I know there's many correlations as to why these things are true, but let me just throw out a couple of pandemic statistics because I think the pandemic really messed with us in our modern culture where we're used to living by and large to a certain age and our worlds were kind of rocked as we were faced with disease and the potential of death. Now, I know boredom has parts to play in some of these statistics as well, but, but, but here's why I would say we work hard to ignore the idea of death. In part, there was a 34% increase of alcohol sales during the pandemic, right? What is that other than trying to numb ourselves to some of the hard realities that we face? There was also this, and I'm not knocking my brother Tommy, who binge-watched that show here this week, but, but, you know, 31% is what the subscription... Um, kind of Netflix, Amazon Prime. That's, that's how much that increased over the course of the pandemic. Now, I know we were also really bored, right? But the average American spent six hours and 20 minutes in front of a, a screen of some sort over the course of the pandemic, and that was up uh, almost a couple of hours over the course of that time. We oftentimes think that thinking of the end is actually bad or negative, but I came across a couple of studies this week that were fascinating from the National Institutes of Health. One uh, from funeral home directors, uh, ones who were veterans in the industry. Uh, They tended to have less anxiety about death than those who were just entering the industry. In essence, because they've had to face these realities time and time again. Another study talks about a sense of renewal in the lives of hospice workers. Because again, they've had to, to look at death in the face time and time again. And I would say for those who claim faith in Jesus Christ, there's an even deeper layer of that as it moves in, into the eternal because there is confidence that this is not all there is. That there is hope in Jesus Christ and in a life to come. I, I actually had the privilege of, of sitting through two of those memorial services this week where it was truly filled with hope and a hope that is to come. It's actually good to think about the end. Unfortunately, for most of us, we spend a lot of our lives trying to ignore the fact that there is an end, but really that's just foolish. Today, Jesus wants us to face the reality that history has an end, and so do we in our physical lives. And and he's calling us to have confidence in him, that he will do what he says he will do, and ultimately he will return and make all things new. And so that's where we're going to be headed today. Again, Matthew 24. I'm just going to start off by reading the context of the parable we're actually going to jump into. I remember when I prepared, I was like, I'll talk about the parable of the fig tree. And then when I started studying, I was like, why did I think I could just talk about these three verses? And it make any sense at all. We have to go backwards about 30 verses to understand uh, the, the context in which Jesus is telling this parable. So this is on the heels of Jesus sitting overlooking Jerusalem weeping because that city his people have rejected him and he'll say i'm not coming back to you. And so it's on the heels of that that Matthew records these words. So follow along with me, Matthew 24, I'm going to read the first 3 verses. It says this, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to the point or came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Let me pray for us as we get going here this morning. Uh, Lord, I know for me, uh, it's really challenging to live with the end in mind. We have so much offered to us, so many comforts, so much hope Lord, medical provision. It's hard for me to think with the end in mind and to live as such. And and I'm convinced as as a modern culture, it's also equally difficult for all of us. And so, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would go before us and that you would impress upon us eternal realities. Would you sober us to these realities? But Lord, would you also meet us in great hope Uh, of the eternity that is to come. And so, Holy Spirit, would you work in and through me, and would you work inside uh, of every one of our hearts who's listening here, uh, whether we're in person or online. we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so here's the rest of the context. This is the fifth section that Matthew records on Jesus's teaching, or fifth fifth discourse is what it's called. And this is called the Olivet Discourse. So uh, that's the fancy way of saying the teaching, that Jesus gave when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. We'll see there in verse 3, as Jesus sat uh, sat on the Mount of Olives. And really, these next several weeks as we end this series, is is looking at Jesus' teaching on the end times, essentially. How to prepare, what this means for our lives. And uh, his audience are his followers here, right? And so you kind of get this weird sense. It kind of feels like the disciples and Jesus were on this tour together, right? And they're kind of going on the bus through Jerusalem, and they're like, Jesus, look at the temple buildings. Isn't this beautiful, Right? And then Jesus comes back to probably with words that were probably surprising for them to hear, where he says, hey, by the way, not a single stone of the temple and these buildings are going to be, remain standing, right, in a time to come. And they're probably going, what? What's going on? And so the natural questions that came to their minds are probably the same ones that could come to ours if we're sitting there listening to Jesus teach these things. It's basically the when and the what. In verse 3, he says, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so they're asking questions that, uh, that embrace both the near and the far. Jesus, when will these things be when all these stones and buildings will be cast down? But, but also, uh, what will be the signs of when you'll finally come? The end of the age means the end of human history. And so those are the questions that the disciples come to Jesus with. And he basically answers with three things. Um, the first is he's saying, hey, there's challenging times ahead. That's the first point we're going to look at. And then he says, clearly, history, human history as we know it, has an actual end. And then the third thing we're going to look at is Jesus saying, and here's where you need to focus in the midst of those realities. So challenging times ahead, history has an end, and where do we focus in light of these things? So first, let's look at this idea of challenging times being ahead. And there's, there's a bit of a tension. Again, I'm not going to take time right now to, to dig through every single one of these first 30 or so verses, but, but there's an already not yet. So as we've talked about the kingdom that Jesus introduces, uh, we talk about it in terms of, hey, uh, Jesus is introducing the kingdom. There's an already nature to when Jesus came, the kingdom is here, but there's a not yet aspect, meaning it's not here in its fullness. And I would say as Jesus is talking about the end times, he's using the same paradigm where there's an already and a not yet. And so you're going to feel some of this tension. Let me me explain some of it to you. The first is there's an immediate fulfillment to this prophecy uh, that's sitting before the disciples. Uh, In part, when he's talking about the temple being destroyed, the temple in Jerusalem is literally destroyed in 70 AD. So Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives in between 33-35 AD prophesying this. And in 70 AD, a Roman army under Titus comes in and utterly destroys Jerusalem and the temple. It was horrifying. And so, uh, there is a more immediate fulfillment of that in that generation, right, before that generation passed, where Jerusalem was literally destroyed. But there's also language in there that we can't quite escape, where we go, Jesus is also hinting at something that is future, right? So, there's an ultimate future, and and, uh, 15 to 28 uh, depicts something called the abomination of desolation, uh, and here's a couple of the verses talking about most scholars would say the destruction of Jerusalem, at least. But but there's words like this where we're going, okay, this is something bigger, right? Jerusalem was local. This tends to be something more global. He says, then there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so there's this tension that the disciples are going to be called to live out of, and there's a tension that I believe we're called to live out of, where there isn't already to some of the tribulation and and hardship that Jesus talks about. And then there's a not yet. This tends to point to a global war of some sort that, that tends to move towards the ultimate. As we live in tension, can I just share one verse with you? It's in 2 Peter 3. Peter's talking to a group of people who are like, hey, Jesus is late. He's running late. He should have been back by now. Where is he? And Peter says this, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And he goes on to say, hey, and Jesus is being patient so that more can come to faith in Jesus. And so, uh, Peter wants us to know, and I want to articulate to us, that as we live in this tension, you know, Jesus didn't forget to turn on his notifications for his Apple iPhone calendar, right? Uh, He didn't miss the day that he was supposed to come back. Uh, That's what Peter is articulating here, but there is this reality that there is a tension we must live in, and in this tension, it calls for endurance for his people. If you go back to verses 4 and following, You'll see Jesus saying, hey, um, there are some things that are going to begin to transpire as we arrive at the time where I'm going to return. In verse 4, or in verse 5, he says, Many are going to come as false Christs, or come in my name. They're going to lead you astray. Verse 6, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. He says, they're going to rise nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be famines and earthquakes in various places. And listen to what he says. All these are but the beginning or or birth pangs. He said, we're not even at the hospital yet, right? To have this child. These are just the birth pangs that go, oh, something's going on. These aren't signals of, okay, this is imminent. This is right this second. And then he goes on to unpack things further. And, And this doesn't feel like great news to those who are followers of Jesus, but this is what he says. He doesn't hide some of the hard realities. He said they will deliver you, talking to his disciples, up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations. Why? For my namesake. Simply because you are a Christian. Simply because you believe differently than the culture around you. You will be given up to jail and death. Many will fall away. I don't mean to make light of this, but the phenomenon that we feel like is unique to us right now in deconstruction was happening 2,000 years ago or at least prophesied by Jesus 2,000 years ago. My people, that's the context he's talking about, will betray one another and hate one another. There will be false prophets that arise that lead other people astray. There will be lawlessness. That's just another way of saying sin will go unabated. will run rampant the love of many will grow cold. Friends, I know where we sit, we go, oh, this is unique to us. It's not unique to us. I mean, just go back to World War II. The whole world thought, hey, the world is ending because of this great war. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's a good chance that 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 was just birth pangs of it. There's just this reality of life intention, but as we live in tension, it will be difficult. Jesus is promising his followers the way forward will demand patience and endurance. Well, friends, I, I hope these will be one of my last illustrations using my bathroom uh, in my house. I'm really tired of being able to give illustrations of the bathroom in my house. I've told some illustrations of when I used the shower for a while uh, or when somebody was, we could stand in the kitchen, all of a sudden water comes pouring through the ceiling. You remember that? That was a fun one. We loved that day. Uh, there were other times where we were demoing a cast iron tub and we had to figure out how to break this thing. That was a miserable day, but uh, kind of fun for illustration fodder. Well, uh, the reality is we got to the second. So we have a second bathroom that we're demoing that was basically, you know, we were rearranging the deck furniture on the Titanic on that one too. So it was time to to basically put that one uh, down as we build uh, a new one. And so, uh, you know, I, I had a friend who's a contractor who said, hey, I just got to warn you, this one's going to be tough. Uh, and he warned me because, uh, the, we had a stand-up shower and the tile was put on over wet bed. You know what wet bed is? So it's like chicken wire and a couple of inches of basically this evil concrete, uh, and then tile over top of it. And so, you know, I talked to a whole lot of people. Hey, how do I get this off? And all these different ideas. And, you know, one person's like, just take a sledgehammer to it. <laughs> I did. And I ended up blowing out the wall in the hallway as I, uh, wailed on it. That was a wonderful moment. I loved it. It was great. Um, and so eventually it came down to me with an air hammer, which is like a jackhammer that uh, it looks like a little gun, and just for like six or seven hours, every single tile. You did not want to be in my head and in my heart in those moments. Don't ever do it. If you come across a wet bed, stand-up shower, it is worth the money to pay somebody to knock that thing out. I'm just, just going on record. So here's the reality. My friend warned me. He said, hey, this is going to be tough, right? But what if I got like right in the middle of that wet bed and I started drilling? I'm like, you know what? This is hard. And anything that's hard is wrong. It means my friend is totally off the rails and, and I'm just going to give up. It's better, like, it's better for me to just walk away from this because it's wrong. Well, you would be like, you're a dummy. Now you have a bathroom that is unusable. right? There is a perseverance that has to happen as I walk through the hard and, and, and I say that just because uh, there is this reality in the Christian faith where sometimes we will say, hey, if it is hard, then Jesus has lost control of this whole thing. That actually persevering any further in the faith is actually wrong. And, and I would just say Jesus is, is not hiding anything from his followers, saying this will be challenging. You know what this protects us from? that Jesus is being honest here he's protecting, uh, protecting us from something called overrealized eschatology now those are big words i'm going to use eschatology a couple of times eschatology is just this fancy theological term for the study of final things and an overrealized eschatology is when we look ahead at eternity right where jesus will wipe away every tear where there will be ultimate blessing for those who are in him and we read too much of that back into our current context Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I do believe there are resurrection realities that invade here. That's why Jesus calls us to be salt and light, to bring redemption uh, to the culture around us. But but we sometimes read too much of eternity into our current context. The most extreme version of this is what I would call health and wealth gospel. That's the belief that's saying, if if I trust and follow Jesus, then in this life I should be totally blessed, just like I will be in eternity. So I'll have perfect relationships, a lot of money, and perfect health. Jesus rejects that. He doesn't even fit that category. Jesus should be able to fit our theological categories, right? He was murdered, poor, and homeless, and had rough relationships, didn't he? And so there's a danger of of embracing an over-realized eschatology. And in fact, Jesus puts us in a place where we cannot depend on our own energy, ability, perseverance, or self-generated hope. That's why Paul talks about laboring in the power of the Holy Spirit, because we cannot generate that on our own. That's why Christians are called to be people on our knees, begging him to give us what we need to persevere in this tension. Here's the second point he makes. History has an end. Follow back with me. So here's the actual parable I was going to get to here today. Jesus says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. See also, when you see all these things, you know that it is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right, so he's saying here history has an end, that history, as we know it, has a season. And he's using this fig tree uh, basically in spring. He's saying, hey, when you begin to see uh, the orange, or orange, good grief, the green leaves, where did orange come from? the green leaves begin to shoot out from this, you know that the current season of winter is getting ready to end, and the summer is coming. I love this time of year. I love driving down Susquehanna Road and other roads, of course, but, but when you kind of see that mint green hue to the trees where those fresh leaves are beginning to come out, especially when the bark is wet and it's nice and dark behind it, that's just one of my favorite visuals, in part because I hate winter, <laughs> and I'm going promise a summer. It's warming up, right? You know, we have this little tulip underneath the ground in our house. We don't know what sort of flower bed was there before, but it just comes up every year. And it's this point where when you begin to see it, you're like, that blossom is going to open at any given time. And and, and I just, I kind of can't wait to see it. It's my favorite time of year. I love the spring. Well, that's basically the, the metaphor that Jesus is using to teach his disciples as to his return and the end of the age. Kind of like that tulip bulb, when I see it come up, I'm like, I don't know when that thing's going to pop, but I know it's going to come. And it's usually sooner than I had thought it was going to come, right? I'll wake up one morning and there it is. And before it was just this little green uh, bud just coming out of the ground. And so that's in part what Jesus is actually teaching here. He's saying, guys, the end of the age will actually come sooner than you think. Or I would say, especially as we lean into what we're going to look at next week, uh, it'll come when we are least expecting it. He's saying, as you begin to see these things, and by the way, we've seen wars and rumors of wars and has Jerusalem fallen at least in the 70s? Yes. So in part, he's saying there is this reality where my return is imminent. It's like Jesus could be behind that door over there, ready to pop in. In fact, here's what the Bible would articulate the last days. There's all this debate over last days and end time stuff. I'm going to talk about that here in just a second. But but Scripture in the book of Hebrews actually orients us as to when we will actually begin living in the last days. Hebrews 1 says, long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he's talking about Old Testament prophets here. But he's saying, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, right? That's Jesus showing up on the scene, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so, friends, I would just say this. We are currently, by the Bible's definition, living in the last days. Christ's church has been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Now, I know even in this text, in verse 14, there is debate as to, okay, is there one more like trigger thing that needs to happen for Christ to burst in the doors? And here's the verse I'm referring to where it says, um, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So there's a broad interpretation of that and there's a narrow interpretation of that. The broad interpretation is, hey, the gospel has gone out to all the nations per Acts chapter one, where he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the moment the gospel left Samaria, which we know it did when it went to North Africa, when it went to the rest of the Roman Empire, that that was actually fulfilled. Then there's a more narrow teaching on this. I think guys like John Piper in the Perspectives course, if you would ever hear this, says, hey, you know, there's a tribe out there somewhere who has not had the gospel in their native language, and the moment that happens, pal, Jesus comes back. I'll just tell you where I side, and and it's just room for debate. This is one of those kind of not, not, it's an opinion-level thing, not a uh, conviction-level issue. But, but I just believe, especially in studying the rest of this chapter and the chapters to follow in the book of Revelation, I, I would side with my professor, who I'm getting ready to quote to you, that, that there really isn't anything else left to be fulfilled, at least that's the tone that Jesus uses throughout the rest of this chapter, that he literally could come back at any point. Here's the professor that I'm going to quote, but you may have your professor to quote, but it says, These are the last days in the sense that there is nothing that God must yet accomplish in history other than the return of Jesus himself. There is no trigger, nothing that must happen to set the clock for Jesus' return. Jesus can return at any time. And I think we'll see that a little bit more next week uh, as we venture deeper into this chapter. But here's essentially what he's saying. No matter where you land on your interpretation of that verse, is that the end of human history is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. Did you read verse 35? heaven and earth will pass away. Not maybe. It will. It will. Let me also make this one quick comment. Um, I'm actually going to skip this quote. But here's the last comment. It says, this generation will not pass away. That's another tricky passage that some people go, hey, that generation passed away and all these things have not yet been fulfilled. Well, uh, the problem with Pronouns and words that are like all these things. It's hard to know exactly what that's pointing back to. And so I'll just give you three schools of thought on what all these things was referring to. Some people think it's the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70. Some hold to it's an already not yet. So some of these things, all these things have happened in part, but there will be a fuller or a more grand fulfillment of that to come. And then there's others who would be dispensational theologians who would hold to this is more talking about an ethnos or a people group in the Jewish nation that won't pass away until these things return. But I'm just letting you know that if you kind of wrinkle your uh, brow on that one, there's just different schools of thought. And I think we can still hold to the reality that, that Christ is still true to his word. And again, his notifications have not failed to go off and he will one day return. All right, sooner than we think, guaranteed. Uh, number At the end of February, one of my mentors and one of my closest friends texts me and says, please pray for my son and his new wife. They just took off to go into the White Mountains to hike the presidential range, uh, and a, a blizzard's just blown up on them. They're a few hours in. Uh, they decided to turn around and come back, but they can't find the trail because it's white-out conditions. The temperature's dropping to zero uh, and below with the wind chill. Pray that they can get back to the car, make it back to Boston, that the roads will be passable. And so uh, we were praying for an awfully long time, uh, really into, late into the night, and Uh, finally just you know just want to ease the tension they made it back to their car Uh, they made it back but but the reason I tell that story is as I was doing that so I used to be really into backpacking and uh, I used to study like survival tactics and whatnot And so I was thinking hey uh, with my friend because we we knew this guy very well we used to uh, run an urban youth camp on the side of a mountain in Colorado with this man and, and all of his family and so Um, I was like, what would I do if I was stuck in the White Mountains and I thought I was going to freeze to death, right, which was a very real possibility for him. And I'm like, I I would build one of those snow caves, right? You just mound a bunch of snow up and uh, you leave your trekking poles for air holes and and you kind of dig down and in and you carve out a spot inside and you move in and you just kind of wait it out. And the beautiful part about those caves is when you crawl into it, the temperature inside is consistent, right? It's not the same as the air temperature. It stays about the temperature of the snow, the packed-in snow, about 32 degrees. And there's no wind. And actually, you can get kind of balmy, right, if you're in there for a while and you're, and you're all rugged up. And so uh, I was thinking about that. I don't know why that came to mind. This kind of gets to be a weird illustration here uh, pretty quickly if it's not already there. But I just thought to myself, how crazy would it be if my friend and his wife crawled in there and they're like... This is kind of nice. Like, I like the view. We're in the White Mountains. I think we should just kind of move here and make this our permanent home. Shelter, roof over our head, if you will. This will be good. What would you say to my friend? You're crazy. At the very least, what's getting ready to happen? It's going to melt, right? By the end of June, that home is going to go away. Well, friends, the reason I give that kind of absurd picture is the picture Jesus is showing us of history not staying forever, it protects us against this is homism. This is homism. This idea that thinking that that where we are today, America, either now or 300 years ago, or the suburbs, or our nuclear family, or our great job, or our comforts, is all there is. When we make history something that it's not, permanent, It actually creates in us all sorts of false hopes, and our life comes out all sorts of sideways. We begin believing that we have to protect and preserve the snow cave. It's melting. We'll work as hard as we possibly can at all costs to stop it. I do think that that in part, that's what's feeding some of the, the intense nationalism or tribalism or anger or hopelessness that we feel. Because we have made what is present our total worldview. Of course we're going to go crazy trying to protect and preserve it. It's melting. It will go away. Christ will return and make all things new. Last night I was reading Jack Miller's biography. Jack Miller founded basically the New Life Churches and Surge and and what have you. But uh, it was this picture where he was in a conversation with his daughter Barbara. And Barbara had walked away from the faith and he just looked at her and he said, hey, I pray every night and I'm in tears because of the thought of you not being in heaven with me. And man, she went off on him. She just lit him up. And in the book, this is what it says. It says, Jack prayed for patience to listen and to remain quiet and for God to touch her conscience with his spirit to convict her of her sin and to grieve her or to give her an awareness that it is insane to organize your life as though this present world is eternal. Let me read that again. It is insane to organize our life as though this present world is eternal. Friends, where have we crawled into the snow cave and made it home? Where is that in your life? We all do it. Here's the last point he makes. is, Is Jesus with this last phrase of this teaching, points us to where to focus. How many of you here have ever heard the term keep your eye on the ball? You ever heard that? Yeah, there's some hands. Yeah, we've heard keep your eye on the ball, right? If you've played a sport, keep your eye on the ball. Now, I know this might be too soon for the Phillies fans in here. Bryce Harper, you know, hitting the eye like that was taking it to the extreme. By the way, um, I know when I would retire from professional baseball. Can I tell you when? when I got hit in the eye with a baseball, right? I'd be a commentator the next day. Uh, Bryce Harper, good for him. I'm glad he's okay. But but I thought about that this week as I'm going, why, why are we taught to keep our eye on the ball? Whatever sport we play, right? If it's baseball or I think golf, right? People always like, hey, keep your head down. Keep looking at the golf ball when you hit it. Why? Because our tendency is even if we were one time looking at the ball, we tend to begin to focus on other things, especially... When there's distractions, when there's something that gets tough, we, we pick our head up. And what Jesus is saying is, keep your eyes on the ball. Jesus is the ball. And I say that because look at how he ends this. He says, heaven and earth, verse 35, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. As his followers are living in this tension where they will likely be persecuted. Friends, when we will likely likely, probably, be persecuted because we bear the name of Jesus Christ, because we hold to biblical morality in the name of Jesus Christ. We will be persecuted. Eleven of the twelve of these guys were murdered for their faith. They didn't know it, but I, gotta, I have to imagine that, that Jesus wanted to remind them when Rome invaded Jerusalem and knocked down the temple and all the buildings when they went to bed at night in a famine with an empty stomach, as Paul is asking the church in Macedonia that was impoverished to give money to Jerusalem that was in worse shape because of the famine and they were starving to death when they were taken away in chains and persecuted, I wonder if these words came back. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. I will come back. It is a guarantee. A number of years ago when my family went to China, when Sarah and I went to China, and it was a time of deep persecution. They were arresting people on our campus. We were being followed. There were taps on our phones. It was, it was really frightening. And I sat down to one of my, next to one of my friends who was a long-term worker. I was like, how are you doing? How are you handling this? You, know, you, you may get arrested soon. And he said, Anthony, you know what I'm doing? He said, I just finished mem- memorizing my second of the four Gospels. And he said, I'm memorizing them in part because I know that I may be arrested, thrown in jail, and I won't have my Bible, but I know Jesus' words will not pass away and his promises are true, and that will be my hope. Friends, that's living in this reality. So there's two things that these last words of Jesus naming that my words won't pass away do to protect us. The first is it protects us from an overly precise eschatology. Right? Remember study of the end times? I know for some of us, if we lived through the 90s in the church, um, there was an obsession with the end times. Hey, we'll know the end times is here when there's a Black Hawk helicopter from America flying over Israel, and that's when we know Jesus will come back. And I'm not saying there's no value in the study of those things. It's, it's good to wrestle through our millennial views and whatnot. But, but if we become overly precise, if what first comes to mind as we think about this ultimate return, is the timing of it and we're obsessing over this political figure or this or this mark of the beast instead of the mark of the lamb or fear instead of hope, then we have lost the ball in the weeds. The eye's off the ball. Jesus is saying, my words will remain. And what is most sure is he is saying, I will return. And, And you know what else that protects us from? Utter hopelessness. Utter hopelessness. In our assurance of pardon, did you notice some of the terms that Paul said that that won't be able to separate us from Christ's love? Sword, famine, persecution. its The exact same stuff Jesus is talking about here. Paul seems to think this is important as we face hopelessness because this is a reality. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's the birth pangs, Right? And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Even in this tension, there's an ability to hope and to wait with eagerness. And so, friends, in conclusion, don't ignore the fact that there is an end. Grow in your conviction. That history will end. It will be challenging. But grow equally in your conviction that Jesus' words are true and he will come back. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, such a hard concept for modern minds in a developed nation. We love the comforts of this world. We are convinced they will never go away. And the younger we are, the harder this reality is. But I am convinced that this is an area you want your people to be aware of, be convinced of, and to grow in faith. Lord, pull our hands away from the things that we hold to for our hope. Take our hope and place it gently in you, in your life, in your death, in your resurrection, and in your certain return. And Father, if there are those who have not trusted wholly in you, who have built their lives in the melting cave, Lord, would you woo their hearts to you today? Would you make your hope their hope and call them to you? We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.